0: Grace to you in peace from our triune God, who is our life and our light, who shines in the darkness of this world. There's a light bulb in Livermore, California, in a fire hall that is called the Centennial Light Bulb. It's really not an accurate name because it's been glowing and burning for more than a hundred years. Uh, I guess right now it's in like the hundred and 20th year of its burning, Um, and it's glowing with a little bit dimmer luminosity than what it used to. They estimate it's about now a 4 watt bulb, but it is almost never unplugged, and of course, with anything that has excellence, you would expect it to come from Ohio, and that is in fact true, Uh, built by the Shelby Electric Plant in the 1890s uh, in Ohio, and then eventually making its way to this fire hall Uh, And it's described as being a light that is hardly ever turned off, which is probably one of the secrets of its longevity. As I think about lamps burning and lamps burning brightly or dimly and lamps burning for a long time, I think about the power of God's word to be, as he claims it is, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's the key to letting the lamp of God burn always. And there is a verse that sometimes I think God oftentimes inserts a phrase that's not necessarily essential, we don't think, but it's really a far bigger iceberg sort of phrase that has much more below it than what you see at first glance. And that is included in verse 3 of chapter 3, and I would like you to read it with me if you would flip over your bulletin to the Old Testament verse from 1 Samuel chapter 3, and we're going to read verse 3, which is at the end of the second paragraph there, and when you find it, we will read it together, beginning with the lamp. We read, The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, Where the ark of God was. So, why include this detail? Well, I think first of all, it is used as a description of the lighting in the tabernacle, that sacred tent, which apparently was still around some 400 years later after it was first constructed during the Exodus. Secondly, it's a spiritual metaphor. It is a metaphor describing the darkness that had been gathering over the years during this 400-year period that we would call the time of the judges. And in chapter 1, you also hear part of the elements of that darkness was that God had withdrawn that lamp to the feet of the people, the word of God. Chapter 3, verse 1 says the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the Lord, word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So during this time of the judges, which roughly we date from 1400 to uh, the middle of the 10 hundreds, it was in the end of this era, this era of the judges that were now at the penultimate judge with Eli Uh, who served as both high priest and judge, and then later his subsequent successor, Samuel, who you heard about his first call in today's Old Testament reading. Samuel would be the final judge of Israel before the time of the kings. This all began with Joshua, who served as both a general and a judge. He was the one who would cross over the Jordan River and lead them into the Promised Land, and of course we Draw that analogy, Joshua, his name really is the name Jesus. He is leading them into the promised land just as Jesus leads us into the kingdom of heaven. And how did that conquest take place? You may remember. Through the brilliant fighting and courageous battle of God's people? No, it started off with them blowing trumpets and lighting lamps. The point of that conquest initiated that way was that God was the one who was going to be fighting their battles, and all they had to do was trust him, follow him, and he would lead them to victory. Just listen to his word. Watch what the lamp is illuminating. But if you read the book of Judges over and over again, both the judges and the people failed to let that lamp have its way with them, and they would step into the darkness the light of that word would sometimes be either obscured by their own desire for some other light, or it would be obscured because God withheld it. Sometimes it was obscured because there was other artificial light that got their attention. You may remember that when you go out at night, it's harder to see the stars when you're in a city, right? Because the artificial light of the city obscures the natural light of the stars. That's very similar to what was going on in the days of the judges and still goes on today and really has never left us. This idea of having artificial light, some other light, shine brighter in our life than the original light of God's word. The technical term for this I'm applying here is syncretism. <clears throat> it's a word that means that you really kind of hold two different faiths simultaneously. Technically, the word means literally a union of communities. So syncretism is gathering together different communities, in this sense, different religious communities, and saying, well, you know what, I don't really see a difference, or maybe I like yours better than the one I'm leaving, which is the light of Yahweh. Jesus, moments before the darkness of death, would touch him and on that Good Friday evening, In his high priestly prayer in John 17, we talk about a phrase that has found its way into most Christian communities, be in the world but not of the world. It's expressed elsewhere in scripture, but it's pretty clear in John 17 that Jesus is praying that the church of God always follow the light of the word and not let other lights impinge upon it or be their guide. But we find out in Judges, they were not only in the world, but they were also of the world. They were letting those other lights take a lead. This migration to darkness is not usually a sudden migration. We don't suddenly wake up and say, I think I'm done with Jesus. Let's get something else to shine its light on me. I always remember that in Pittsburgh, where I began my ministry, there were lots of tunnels, and if you've been there, Some of these tunnels are quite long and they require artificial light when you go into the tunnel. And in the tunnel that we went through most often on the Parkway, which is aptly named because pretty much you just parked on that freeway called the Parkway. Uh, But as you went through that tunnel, you would start with two sets of lights. And it would be a long stretch of two sets of lights before one of those sets was deleted. And then you only had like fluorescent lights the rest of the tunnel. And you didn't need any more light when you came out the other end of the tunnel. There was no second set of lights that came on because it's much easier for our eyes to adjust quickly to light than to adjust to darkness. And so they are led into a darker area over a longer period of time. I think just as the eye works that way, that's the way demonic influence works. He works slowly and gradually and we finally adjust to the darkness and think it's the norm. But when the brilliant light of Christ shines, it changes instantaneously what you see, and you start to walk by faith, not by sight, and you don't miss the darkness that you left. Peter would write this in the second chapter of his first epistle. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness. You know what happens? Into his marvelous light. Peter, a man who had his own skirmishes with darkness, certainly before he met Christ and indeed even after he met Christ, Peter helps us understand how syncretism and its leading into darkness happens in those words. We don't really think of ourselves as a different people many times when we're Christians. A different race, in fact, was what Peter says. We don't think of ourselves as priests often. Pastors probably do more than others. We don't think of ourselves as possessed by God. And yet that's what the text tells us. And we don't think that our purpose is to proclaim God. And because we don't really have that light and that identity directing us every day in a powerful way, like a spotlight or the sun, we then forget that we are a peculiar people possessed by God, owned by God. We are priests with a purpose to proclaim. And so slowly we step away, moving into the darkness, as the world has other claims on our identity. I oftentimes tell people, imagine if you had to wear a clerical collar all the time. I mean, all the time. What would it be like? What would it be like if you were wearing a collar and you happened to be watching pornography on your computer? Or what would it be like if you were with your friends at a party and you decided that you would wear your clerical collar and get drunk? What would it be like if you were wearing your clerical collar and spending constantly and selfishly on yourself rather than your spiritual stewardship that God has called you? As we hear what the climate and culture was like in Israel at the end of the era of the Judges, We hear that the word of the Lord was rare, there was no frequent vision, and you ask yourself, why? Lord, that was exactly what they needed. They really needed the light of the prophets to speak to them. But God dimmed the light, because people didn't want it. They wanted something else. They wanted to be another community. They wanted to be participating in syncretism. So Amos, in his prophetical words, that a little bit later than the Judges era, but the same thing was going on, wrote these words in chapter 8 of his book. Because of this, I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. It's like God said, okay, you don't want to hear my word? I'll just turn the tap off. I'll just darken the lamp. If you don't want it, I won't give it. Sometimes God says that. The New Testament calls this quenching the spirit. We do it all the time. certainly happened in a big way during COVID and after COVID. Thanks be to God for the web in this occasion, which gives us the ability to communicate when people are at home the gospel light. So the metaphor of darkness was also continued in the person Eli. Eli, this priest who was also a judge, it says this in the second verse. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. Now, before I make this illustration, let me say to you that my brother, who's totally blind, after having RP or retinitis pigmentosa for 15 years, gradually has stepped into the darkness. You are not judged by God if you are blind. We know that clearly from John 9, where Jesus said, that's not why this guy's blind. In fact, the glory of God is often manifested in the blindness. But in the case of Eli, I think that this dimming of his vision is a reflection of what happened when the leadership grows dark. And Eli was very syncretic as a leader. He participated In many of the things of the world, we learn that by his lifestyle. We learn that by the things that he did and did not do. He lacked that clear light, certainly that Moses and Joshua had in their leadership. He was entrusted with a stewardship, a double stewardship. He was both a priest, the high priest, and he was both a judge. Had to wear two different caps. By the way, Samuel would wear three. I like to say everything is stewardship, and stewardship is everything. What I mean by that is even the gospel is included in the stewardship. Stewardship means we own nothing. We get it all from God, who owns everything, and we are now entrusted with what we have. And I like to say the seven T's of stewardship are some that you know, time, treasure, talent, tissue, our bodies, reflected in our epistle today. It's not your body, it's God's body. Use it for his glory. Trash, environment. You know, God was the first environmentalist tending the garden in the Garden of Eden. And truth, something we don't often think is within our stewardship, but is. How do we talk? Do we bend the truth, or are we clear with the truth? And finally, trust. In our epistle, you heard that phrase, for the Lord. That means that my faith, my faithfulness, is to be now employed. I'm supposed to be tending the lamp and looking at the world with the lens of faith in Christ. And unfortunately, Eli was not faithful in his stewardship. And although Eli does express his discontent with his sons, who were his cohorts, they were sort of assistant priests to his dad, the high priest, they were described, believe it or not, in 1 Samuel as worthless. You're not going to see that in many verses in the Bible. Worthless sons. Well, we know that technically that's not true. What is the value of his two sons? We see the value in Christ. We hear the value in our epistle. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. What was the price? God looks at you and the children of Eli, and he says, I value them with my son. I would exchange my son for them. And that's what Christ did. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Paul said. In our worst stinking sin, God says, I'm going to redeem them. They they are valued by me. And so that's what God did in Christ. And this contrast between God's mercy and our darkness that we're comfortable living in is exactly the point. Jesus, the light of life, shines in dark places all the time. The lamp has not gone out. And that's really finally what I think God is telling us with that lamp. That lamp that Eli was supposed to have kept burning. It had not yet gone out. That beautiful menorah, shining in the holy place, was dim, the oil was running out, but still burning, and along comes Samuel. To me, that is a sign of hope that is ever-present in our life. The lamp of God has not gone out. I don't care how dark you consider your world and your environment. God has not left you. You heard the Psalm. He knows everything that's going on in your life. Even darkness is not dark to God. So you may remember that in the Leviticus book, there's all of these Levitical things to be done. Well, it describes the priests. Eli was a Levite, he was a high priest, and his job was, among other things, as Leviticus 24 would say to keep oil in the lamp. It wasn't supposed to go out. That lamp was supposed to be burning perpetually. It's kind of like our eternal light here. We keep it here as a sign that, yeah, if worship is not going on, you walk in the sanctuary, yeah, God is still here. The lamp had not gone out. But it also tells you that Eli had apparently slipped into a sort of malaise where he thought his job didn't matter, apparently. And he decided that he would let that lamp go out when he was too tired. It really didn't matter. I mean, who else sees it anyway? Some of us grow apathetic in our faith. And we begin to think that faith doesn't matter. And we forget to keep the lamp lit. Think about the people mentioned in our readings today. Philip, fairly obscure. Nathaniel, also obscure. Ah, Andrea, and then this guy named Peter. God calls a collection of people. Some of them are bright lights. And some of those bright lights were like Nathaniel. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Boy, that's a compliment. And yet he needed Jesus. And then Peter, who when he first met Jesus, gave Jesus this recommendation, get away from me for I'm a sinful man. Jesus did not take his advice. Thanks be to God. You and I are probably somewhere between all of these cohorts, the bright lights and the dim lights. And our light still matters. The light didn't go out for Peter even when he denied Christ three times. He may have thought it would go out, but Jesus comes to him and reaffirms his love for him. If you're wondering if your life matters or if God still loves you, read Psalm 136 over and over again. The love of God is everlasting. No matter where you have been or what you have done, he still loves you. He keeps the lamp burning Come to the lamp. What God wants is a continuity between our life as faithful Christians and the lamp that is always shining. You know, it's a hassle to light that thing. I think I may have broken it, by the way, yesterday. Saturday is when we relight the lamp, we start a new lamp. The ladder was missing, and yes, if I'm humble and I go to the higher side, I can reach it without too much problem. I don't need a ladder. But I guess maybe pride was in my heart yesterday, and I reached up there in the lower side, and I dropped that down, and I heard a crack. So we'll find out if it's going to break or not. The point is, it's got to be maintained. It's just one of the strange things about the Christian faith. It is absolutely free. God wants to give it to us. He gives it for free, and then He says, now, together we'll collect this light and make it shine. You've got to live in this community. And sometimes, yes, this community does need to have exclusivity. But God wants us to walk in his light in such a way that people see our lives and glorify who? Our Father in heaven. You walk with humility. You walk with faithfulness you walk forgiven, you walk adopted, you walk ignited. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which stands guard over our heart and mind, keep us shining brightly with the love of Christ, which has shone into our hearts. Amen.